In Alhamdulillah, Nahmedu, Nestainu, Nestofero, when I will be lahim in Shururi and Fusina, was a yati Amalina, when you did him lahu fala mullah, when you will fala hadiella, was Hadu and la ilaha illallah, who la sharikala, was Hadu and Muhammadan Abedu or Rasulu. Amma back. Today then we've got to the section where we're going to be talking about some of the virtuous parts of the Qur'an. Last time we already spoke about Surah Al-Fatiha. Today it goes on to Ayatul Kursi. Allahu la ilaha illa huwa al qayyum And also it mentions Surah Al-Ikhlas, Qul huwa Allahu ahad, and some other chapters. We already mentioned last time that the Qur'an, it differs in its virtues. Different ayat, different chapters have different virtues. But we mentioned that you have to understand those differences in virtues are about the meanings. About the meanings and the topics and the subject matter being discussed. So in Ayatul Kursi, in Al-Fatiha, in Al-Ikhlas, this is all talking about the names and attributes of Allah. That is something highly virtuous, of course. And then there are other parts of the Qur'an where it's talking about the mushrikun, talking about them being in the hellfire, about the munafiqun. That subject matter is not virtuous like the names and attributes of Allah. So the subject matter and the meanings, that's where the differences are regarding the ayat and the chapters of the Qur'an. In terms of all of the Qur'an, every ayah, every word being the speech of Allah, from that aspect, all of the Qur'an is equal of course. Every ayah, every surah, everything, it is all the speech of Allah. Kalamullah. So from that aspect, looking at it from that angle, all of the Qur'an is the same. There is no difference in terms of it being the speech of Allah. Everything in the Qur'an, all of that, every ayah is the speech of Allah. So there's no difference in the Qur'an in that regard. When we talk about the differences in virtue, it's about the topics and the meanings and the subject matter of different parts of the Qur'an. So obviously, in line with that, Ayatul Kursi and Surah Al-Ikhlas, Qul Huwa Allahu Ahad, Al-Fatiha, they have subject matters that are elevated above some of the others. So in terms of Ayatul Kursi first, it is mentioned in a hadith that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam highlighted that Ayatul Kursi is the greatest ayah in the Qur'an. And there is a hadith in Sahih Muslim. Hadith in Sahih Muslim of Ubay ibn Ka'ab, radiyallahu anhu, one of the companions. He said that the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, Ya Abal Munvir, أَتَدْرِي أَيُّ آيَةٍ مِنْ كِتَابِ اللَّهِ مَعَكَ أَعْظَمْ 
So in this hadith in Sahih Muslim of Ubay ibn Ka'ab, radiyallahu anhu, he said that the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, O oh Abu al-Munvir, that was his kunya, do you know what is the greatest ayah of the Qur'an? Qal Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Abu al-Munvir, he said, Allahu wa rasooluhu a'lam, that Allah and his messenger know best. Qal, ya Abu al-Munvir, atadri ayyu ayatim min kitab Allahi ma'aka a'adham? Again, the Prophet said to him, O oh, Abu al-Munzir, do you know which ayah of the Qur'an is the greatest? So then he said, Ubay ibn Ka'ab said, Allahu la ilaha illa huwa al-hayyu al-qayyum. He then mentioned ayatul kursi. And the Prophet wasallam affirmed him upon that answer. So that narration is clear. The Prophet ﷺ was asking him, Do you know what the greatest ayah of the Qur'an is? And when he then gave the answer in the end, Allahu la ilaha illahu al-hayyul qayyum, the Prophet ﷺ affirmed him upon that answer. So that is the evidence in Sahih Muslim. Uh, because when Ubay ibn Ka'ab gave that answer, it is mentioned, فَضَرَبَ فِي صَدْرِ That the Prophet ﷺ did this to him. The Prophet ﷺ put his hand upon his chest and said to him, لِيَهْنِيكَ الْعِلْمُ أَبَا الْمُنْذِرِ May knowledge be easy for you, Abu al-Munzir. May knowledge be facilitated for you, Abu al-Munzir. So this was an affirmation that Ayatul Kursi is indeed the greatest ayah of the Qur'an. In terms of what it means and what it is about, then we know that Ayatul Kursi talks about the names and the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It includes within it Five of the names of Allah within Ayatul Kursi, five of the names of Allah, and it includes within it over 20 attributes, over 20 attributes that can be mentioned regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Therefore, from that angle alone, it incorporates and includes a level, a number of names and attributes of Allah that no other ayah has that much. There is no other ayah in the Qur'an that has this many names and attributes mentioned within it. Oh, five names, over 20 attributes can be derived. No other ayah has that many in it. So from that angle you can see why this ayah, Ayatul Kursi, is the greatest ayah of the Qur'an. And that's why it's mentioned in the sunnah that a person who reads ayatul kursi before sleeping, before sleep, 
then there will be a guardian upon you and shaitan will not come close to you until the morning you arise. Until you awaken in the morning, then there will be a guardian with you in protection and the shaitan will not come near you. And that is a hadith of Abu Huraira in Sahih al-Bukhari. Hadith of Abu Huraira in Sahih al-Bukhari. That the one who recites Ayatul Kursi at night, the meaning of the hadith, that you will have a guardian protecting you all night and the shaitan will not come near you. Also, from the virtues that are mentioned about Ayatul Kursi, is that you should also recite it when you finish your prayers. When you finish your Fajr prayer, Salam, Salam, afterwards as part of your dhikr that you do, Ayatul Kursi. After Dhuhr, Ayatul Kursi. After Asr, after Maghrib, after Isha. After your prayers, when you finish and you do your remembrance, Subhanallah, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, you do all those things. One of the things that you should read is Ayatul Kursi. At the end, one of the things, one of the du'as, one of the dhikr that you should do is Ayatul Kursi. And that is mentioned in Sunan An-Nasai. There's a hadith in Sunan An-Nasai and in other uh, books of hadith from Abu Umamah, the companion Abu Umamah, radiyallahu anhu, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Man qara'a ayatal kursi fi duburi kulli salatin maktubatin lam yamna'hu min dukhulil jannati illa an yamut. <coughs> Hadith in Sunan An-Nasai declared Sahih by Shaykh Al-Albani that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said whoever recites Ayatul Kursi at the end of each prayer, after each prayer, after each obligatory prayer, Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha, then nothing will prevent him from entering paradise other than death. Meaning, until you die, when you die, then paradise. There is nothing else standing in your way other than death. When death comes, then after that, paradise. That is what is mentioned for the one who recites Ayatul Kursi after each obligatory prayer. It is mentioned by Ibn Al-Qayyim, one of the great scholars, he said, بَلَغَنِي عَنْ شَيْخِنَا أَبِ الْعَبَّاسِ بْنِ تَيْمِيَّةِ رَحِمَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى That it has reached me from our Shaykh Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah was the Shaykh of Ibn Al-Qayyim. Ibn Al-Qayyim says, it has reached me regarding our Shaykh Ibn Taymiyyah that he said, that Ibn Taymiyyah said, مَا تَرَكْتُهَا عَقِيبَ كُلِّ صَلَاتٍ I have never left off saying Ayatul Kursi at the end of the prayer. That he used to say it, recite it after all those prayers, and he would never leave it off. In terms of the meanings, if we look at just some of the general meanings of Ayatul Kursi, Allahu la ilaha illa huwa. It starts off by talking about Tawheed. 
that there is no deity, that Allah, He is the one, Allahu la ilaha illa huwa, that Allah, He is the one whereby there is no other deity worthy of worship in truth except He. There is no deity worthy of worship in truth except He, except for Allah. Allahu la ilaha illa huwa. Allah, there is no other deity worthy of worship in truth except He, except Allah. So within that is an affirmation of Tawheed. And within it is a hasr, a restriction. A restriction. And one of the strongest ways to make a restricted statement is to have an affirmation and a negation. And that's exactly what you have. La ilaha, that there is no other deity worthy of worship in truth. Negation. Illahu, except Him, except Allah, affirmation. That gives you a strong restriction. That only Allah is deserving of the worship, no other deity is deserving of the worship. Negating it from all others, affirming it to Allah alone. So Allah la ilaha illa huwa al-hayyul qayyum. Then we see here the names of Allah. Two examples. Al-hayyu <coughs> al-qayyum. Al-hayyu al-qayyum. These are two of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-hayyu meaning the ever-living. Al-Hay, the attribute of life. And when we talk about life and Allah being the ever-living, there are certain points to remember. You could remember three overall general points, and there are many others. One of them, that there is no lack of existence prior to the life of Allah. There is no such thing as a Lack of existence before the life of Allah. Meaning, in creation, before something is alive, it was non-existent. A person, prior to being born and being alive, before that, he was non-existent. Then he comes into life. But with Allah, no. We don't say that there was any such thing as non-existence, then coming into life. No. Ever living, always the life of absolute perfection and completion. No such thing as non-existence prior to the life of Allah. That's one thing. Secondly, the other end, no such thing as an end to the life of Allah. So there is no such thing as a non-existence prior and there is no such thing as an end after. Perfect and complete Life of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the third thing, there is no deficiency in any way, shape or form that can be attributed to the life of Allah. So it is the ever-living, Allah is the ever-living without any prior non-existence, without any end, 
the absolute and complete life upon perfection with no deficiency. That is Al-Hayy, the ever-living, Al-Hayyu. Then you have Al-Qayyum. Al-Qayyum, it means in English they say the sustainer, which is a little bit short of what you really need to understand from the name Al-Qayyum. They say the sustainer, but Al-Qayyum, the name of Allah, Al-Qayyum, has two parts to it. Al-Qayyum means Al-Qa'im bi-nafsihi al-muqim li-ghayrihi. That Allah, firstly, is self-sufficient. That is one of the meanings of Al-Qayyum. Allah is self-sufficient, meaning He does not require anything from anyone. He is absolutely self-sufficient. No requirement for anything from anyone. That is one meaning of Al-Qayyum. The other meaning of Al-Qayyum, which goes hand in hand, both of them together, the other part of the meaning of Al-Qayyum is the one who sustains others, the sustainer. He sustains the creation. He provides for the creation. So when you put those two together, Allah is the self-sufficient, does not require anything from anyone, but at the same time, He is the sustainer of all and everyone. He does not require any sustenance from anyone, but at the same time, He is the one who sustains everyone. That is Al-Qayyum. He is self-sufficient, not requiring anything, but He is the one who sustains everyone else. Therefore, all of creation, all of creation only exists via the sustenance of Allah. The creation only exists from the sustenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> so that is Al-Hayyu Al-Qayyum. The scholars have mentioned, some of them, that this is Al-Ism Al-A'zam. This is the greatest name of Allah, Al-Hayyu and Al-Qayyum. And Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned that all of the other names and attributes of Allah, they revolve around these two names, Al-Hayyu Al-Qayyum. Because Al-Hayyu, we mentioned, indicates the perfection of life. And to have the perfection of life, you must have the perfection of all attributes and therefore all the other names and attributes of Allah revolve around Al-Hayy and to be Al-Qayyum the self-sustaining who sustains others you must be upon the attributes of perfection so all the other names and attributes of Allah indicate Al-Qayyum as well that's why Ibn Al-Qayyim said, all of the names and attributes of Allah, they revolve around Al-Hayyu Al-Qayyum. And some of the scholars have said, this is the greatest name of Allah, Al-Hayyu and Al-Qayyum. And there's a hadith that if you make dua 
and call upon Allah as Al-Hayyu, Al-Qayyum, then your dua is not rejected. So there are great virtues mentioned regarding these names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then afterwards, Allahu la ilaha illa huwa al-hayyu al-qayyum la ta'khuduhu sinatun wala nawm. We'll just mention that part as well because it connects to this part. La ta'khuduhu sinatun wala nawm. No slumber or sleep overcomes him. La ta'khuduhu, he is not overcome by sinatun slumber and fatigue and no sleep Allah is not overcome and overwhelmed by slumber by fatigue or by sleep this is an affirmation or a negation Allah is not overcome by sleep or slumber so it's a negation we're negating what from Allah Sleep and slumber. We are negating sleep and slumber from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's a negation. When you negate something from Allah, then it's important to remember that the negation is not done for the sake of the negation. Rather it is done to highlight the perfection of the opposite. Negation by itself isn't necessarily praise. Negation by itself isn't necessarily praise. You say somebody, you tell them, you're not stupid. So you've negated, you're not stupid. You've negated something from them. But does that necessarily mean you're saying they've got an IQ of 200 off the charts? Not necessarily. You're just saying you're not stupid. So you've done a negation, but there's no real necessity of a praise in that. He may still be of a very bottom-end IQ level, but he's just not stupid, you're saying. So a negation doesn't necessitate that there's an actual praise in that. So when we talk about negations regarding Allah, it's important to remember those negations are not for the sake of the negation. Because negations by themselves aren't really the praise. The praise comes in the opposite of what is indicated via that negation. So what is indicated via the negation? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is never overcome by sleep or slumber. What is the opposite we understand therefore? Allah is never overcome and overwhelmed by sleep or fatigue or slumber. So what do we understand from that? What is the opposite of perfection we understand? We are fatigued, but what about with Allah? What is the opposite? That's along the lines of it. Anything else? Live, <coughs> huh? Existing. existing, but Allah does not overcome, is not overcome by sleep or slumber. This indicates the perfection of the life of Allah. Because creation, us, 
We have this weakness. We cannot operate unless we sleep. You cannot operate unless you sleep. You can't do anything unless you sleep. Your body must rest. You cannot survive without it. A person, people you've heard, they have a disease, decreed as such, certain people, they cannot sleep. And there are documented cases of people not having slept for weeks and weeks. And what occurred to them? Not having slept for weeks. And their bodies, they shrink away, their muscle all disappears, everything disappears until they become bone because their body cannot function without sleep. So we have this weakness. But Allah is never overcome by sleep or fatigue or slumber, therefore indicating the absolute perfection of the life of Allah. We do not have that perfection. We have to sleep. A third of our lives is spent sleeping. A third of your life is spent sleeping. Out of every 24 hours, you sleep eight. A third of your life in sleep. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not overcome by sleep or slumber, indicating the perfection of the life of Allah. That's the point of highlighting this negation. That's why Allah highlights this negation to us. Not just for the sake of Allah is not overcome by sleep or slumber, but the opposite of what we understand. Therefore, therefore Allah is upon absolute perfection and might and majesty. No sleep, no slumber, no need for any food or drink or anything else. Upon absolute perfection in every regard. So لا تأخذه سنة ولا نوم Also, <coughs> remember that when we talk about affirmations regarding Allah, then that is in detail because affirmations are praise. But when you talk about negations, they are always just left general. You don't go into details of negations. Because when you start going into details of negations, it doesn't really bring about any praise. You don't bring about praise by going into details of negation. Praise is in affirmation of the good attributes. So that's why when it comes to negation regarding certain things to Allah, they are left general. Sleep and slumber, that's it. They don't overcome Allah, no other details. But then the details are in the opposite, in the perfection of the life of Allah. So Allah la ilaha illahu al-hayyul qayyum la ta'akhudhu sinatun wa la nawm lahuma fissamawati. So then it mentions that to Allah belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth. To Allah belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. We know that there are seven heavens, that's mentioned in the Quran, uh, explicitly, explicitly, seven heavens, seven heavens, mentioned in the Quran like that. And seven earths, are they mentioned in the Quran? Not explicitly. Heavens is mentioned explicitly, Sab'a Samawat, seven heavens, like that. The earths, it doesn't actually say in the Quran, seven earths. But there's an ayah where Allah mentions the creation of the seven heavens and, and earths like that. وَمِنَ الْأَرَضِينَ مِثْلَهَا From the earths, 
just like that. Just like what? The seven heavens. So if there are seven heavens, the Qur'an indicates that there are seven earths. In the sunnah, there are clear narrations explicitly saying seven earths as well. So, seven heavens and seven earths, that could be understood as well. And the point being that everything in those heavens and the earth are from the dominion, the kingdom of Allah. Everything in the heavens from paradise, from the angels, and all types of other affairs in the heavens that we do not know about, they are all under the kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And everything on these earths, all of the creation you see on these earths, under the kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those are just some of the beginning explanation of the ayat al-Kursi. We also need to mention al-Ikhlas. Let's briefly mention al-Ikhlas also. Surah al-Ikhlas, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ You notice it begins exactly the same way. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Say that He is Allah, the One. Starts with Tawheed again. Because this chapter of the Qur'an, Al-Ikhlas, it is mentioned the, that the reason why it was revealed, why this revelation came down, is because the mushrikun, some of the mushrikun, they were in a way questioning or challenging the messenger, وسلم, saying to him, Sif lana rabbaka. Describe to us your Lord. Some of the mushrikun, they were saying to the Prophet وسلم, Describe to us your Lord. Describe your Lord to us. Like a challenge to him or like this question to the messenger. Tell us, you tell us, describe to us your Lord. So then Allah sent this revelation of Surah Al-Ikhlas. Because Surah Al-Ikhlas gives you a description of who Allah is. Tells you about who Allah is. So that is mentioned. This was the reason why this revelation came. That some of the disbelievers were saying to the messenger, Describe your Lord to us then. So then this revelation came giving the details. So what details were given? قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Say, O Muhammad. Say, O Muhammad to them. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Say, O Muhammad, that he is Allah the One. And it doesn't just mean say, O Muhammad, after it applies to all the believers. Like say, you believers, to the non-Muslims that Allah is One. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Tell them that Allah is One. No son, no daughter, no partners, no equals. One Lord, one creator. That is all. You worship Allah alone. Qul huwa Allahu ahad. And Qul huwa Allahu ahad. Allah as-samad. Allah as-samad. That Allah is as-samad. As-samad has different meanings. One of them is that As-Samad is the one who all of creation are in need of. So Allah is As-Samad, meaning all of us in creation are in need of Him. 
And he is the one who answers the call of those who call upon him. He is the one who provides the needs and answers the supplications of those who call upon him and pray to him. That is one of the meanings of As-Samad, that all of the creation return their needs back to Allah. So, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ اللَّهُ لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ Allah tells us in the Qur'an that he did not give birth and nor was he given birth to. He did not beget nor was he begotten. He did not give birth, meaning he does not have any child. This is in the Qur'an. Allah does not have any offspring. Allah does not have a son, does not have a daughter. Allah does not have any offspring. وَلَمْ يُولَدْ And neither does he have any lineage above. Neither does he have a father or a mother. He does not have a father nor a mother, nor does he have a son or a daughter. Allah is one. No partners, no father, mother, no son, no daughter. So when Allah told us this in the Qur'an, لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ It is a refutation, a rebuttal, a rebuke of the Christians, the Jews, and the Mushrikun, the polytheists. Why? Because the Christians in Christianity obviously believe that God has a son. You can explain it in whatever way you want, but the son is actually a part of God, or it's a part of the Trinity, doesn't matter. Ultimately, it is said that there is another part of God. Whichever way you want to explain it. And so they say it is the Son of God, Jesus. This ayah in the Qur'an refutes that. In fact, there are many ayat in the Qur'an, many parts of the Qur'an which highlight to us that Jesus is not the Son of God. That He was a messenger. One of the top five messengers from the Muslims from Islam as we believe. But he was not the son of God. Because Allah has told us in the Quran, he does not have any offspring. It is also a refutation and a rebuke of some of the Jewish beliefs, where they believe that someone by the name of Uzair was also the son of God. What did they say in English? Uzair? Ezra. Ezra. So they say Ezra. Uzair was the son of God. Again, this is refuted. Allah tells us no, no offspring. So that is rejected. And it is also a rejection of the mushrikun at the time of the Prophet ﷺ who used to claim... What did they used to claim? Daughters. Daughters? They used to claim that the angels are the daughters of Allah. We do not even say that the angels are female. This is just a concept people have made up now that angels are women. We don't say that. And on top of that, we certainly do not say that they are the daughters of Allah. That's what they claimed. The angels are the daughters of God. Again, that is refuted and rejected and rebuked. لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ Neither did he beget nor was he begotten. No 
Parents, father, mother, no children, no son, no daughters. So Allah highlights to us <coughs> that He is one, single and unique alone. No lineage above or below. Single, no partners in any sense, in any way. So this is the reality of Tawheed. That's monotheism. There is no point claiming that you only worship one God, but then your explanation is that one is actually three, and there are three parts to this one God. No, none of that. Allah is one. Simple as that. No other need for any type of complication. Allah is one. Your creator is one. You worship one. Allah. No son, no daughter, no this, no that. None of that stuff. So, لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُلَدْ وَلَمْ And then at the end Allah says, And he does not have any equal. Allah does not have any equal of any sort. There is nobody who has the attributes of Allah. Nobody who has any comparison to Allah. Nobody that resembles Allah. There is nobody in creation, nothing, no one, that is comparable or resemblant of Allah or similar in any way. That's why as Muslims, we don't worship the Prophet Muhammad. Prophet Muhammad was a creation, a servant of Allah. Not Allah. We don't worship the Prophet, we don't prostrate to the Prophet, we don't supplicate to the Prophet. All of that is worship that is done only to Allah. And this is the reality of the religion of Tawheed, of monotheism, of singling out your Lord alone and worshipping Allah alone. So Allah tells us at the end, وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٍ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not have any equal. Kufuwan, al-kuf, means an equal. Allah does not have any equal in any way, shape, or form. There is no one who participated with Allah in the creation of the heavens and the earth. Nobody who aids Allah. Nobody who has any role to play in that creation or life and death. These are actions of Allah alone. And that is what distinguishes a Muslim upon Tawheed, upon monotheism. Distinguishes a Muslim from all others. Islam. Indeed, the religion with Allah is an Islam. <coughs> then there are some other ayat and some other chapters of the Quran which also have virtues. But in reality, if you do the tafsir of the Qur'an, you go through the different chapters and you recognize the virtues of the other uh, sections of the Qur'an. Any questions up to there so far? So that's about ruqya and the different forms of ruqya. You're in reference to ruqya or in reference to something else? In Ruqya, so Ruqya we know uh, it is legislated if it is done upon the means that are permissible within the Sharia, where somebody is afflicted by something, could be an illness, could be something else, and so you recite upon them, 
you recite upon them the Qur'an or authentic du'as from the sunnah or even it can be other authentic speech which is legitimate and good upon the meanings of tawheed but the Qur'an and the sunnah there is sufficiency within that and that is a means of cure like the famous narration about the one who was bitten by a scorpion and the companions recited upon him al-fatiha and he was cured so that ruqya is permissible if done properly not how people do it now with reading all types of things you have no idea what they're reading is it quran where is it from it who knows what they are reading and half of the time you don't even know what they are saying mumbling if you do ruqya mumbling it's impermissible ruqya has to be done with clear speech which can be heard and understood if imam comes and he starts doing all this kind of thing Haram, that is not ruqya which is allowed. You cannot do ruqya mumbling and nobody can hear what you're saying or you can work out what they're saying. Ruqya, one of the conditions the scholars mention is it has to be clear, audible, understood exactly what you're reciting, Quran, hadith, supplication, dua. So with reciting al-ikhlas and blowing it upon the child or reciting and then blowing upon the water and drinking it and those kinds of things, there are some differences between the scholars over these issues, like the water one, etc. There are some scholars who hold it is permissible to do that, that you recite and blow upon it and then give that water. There are scholars who hold it is permissible to do that. Ibn al-Qayyim is one of them. There are others who will say, no, these kinds of actions don't have enough established authentic evidences for them. So with those kinds of topics, there is going to be some level of difference between the scholars on whether certain actions of ruqya are legislated or not, whether there is enough evidence to prove it with the water, etc. or not. Some scholars believe there is, others they won't believe that there is enough. So if a person has any doubt, you can avoid those methods and simply the normal methods, the normal basic method of ruqya is that you place your hand upon that person, maybe if it's uh, uh, some illness or disease in the chest, so you place your hand close to the chest and do the ruqya. If it was something else on the head, place your hand close to the head and do ruqya. That's the basic method. Place your hand upon that person and do the ruqya where you require for that ruqya. That's the basic method. All of these others then you'll have to investigate into more detail whether it is going to be something accepted by the scholars or not. And sometimes there are differences over them. Anything else? Uh, you mentioned uh, the ayah so the opposite of sleep is staying awake. So is it correct mm. to say that Allah is always awake? Or you just say that He doesn't sleep. <coughs> yeah, so sleep is a deficiency. Sleep is a deficiency. So when Allah tells us He is not attributed with sleep, meaning He's not attributed with this deficiency of sleep, and this deficiency of fatigue, and the deficiency of slumber. Therefore the opposite is that Allah is upon a life of perfection, not needing or being overcome by these deficiencies. We don't need to go into further details. We don't need to then start saying, therefore, Allah is this or Allah is that. What we are affirming is the perfection generally. The perfection is that Allah is 
not overcome by sleep or slumber, therefore indicates the complete and perfect life of Allah. That He is always upon that perfect life without any deficiencies. Sleep is a deficiency, so that is not applicable to Allah. Getting tired and fatigued is a deficiency, that is not applicable to the life of Allah. So then we basically end up with perfection and completion for the life of Allah. Beyond that, getting into terminology, it is not really suitable. Because then a person may end up in certain terminology which is not befitting, may be unknowing. But those kinds of details are more studied and understood in books of Aqidah. Like Al-Aqidah Al-Wasatiyah, Al-Tahawiyah, those kinds of books you study a bit more about the names and attributes. Anything else? The Fard prayers definitely, it is established to recite it after the Fard prayers, because the Hadith mentions the Fard prayers. So that is what is established. To recite it on the Nafal prayers, Allah alam about an evidence for that. For the Fard prayers it is established, so that makes it definitely in the day. How many times are you going to read it? Five. Plus also, in the night before you go to sleep, so that's six times a day. Any more? Huh? Which of So how many more times is that going to be? So altogether, eight. It is sunnah to recite Ayatul Kursi eight times a day. Once after each prayer, that's five. Once before you go to sleep, six. And once within your morning adhkar, and once within your general evening adhkar. Making it eight uh, supplications of the morning, supplications of the evening, making it eight times in the day. Anybody else? No, when, when you do this before you sleep, and then you don't sleep, and you do something else, you have to do it again. No, it depends. I mean, you don't sleep uh, if you're talking about three hours. You go off and you do all sorts of things, then you come back three hours later, so then now you can do it again. But if you're talking about ten minutes here and there, not necessarily. That is still within your sleep. Something occurred, you had to just get up, but you're back in again. But if it was something lengthy and, and it's broken away, you've broken away from your act of sleeping or going to sleep. You've got up to go do something, you have to go out somewhere, some other job has to be done, an hour later you come back, so now you're going to go to sleep, recite it. Anybody else? Uh, before they die? Yeah, so like, let's say on their deathbed, so they recite Surah Yasin over them, because they know they're going to die, so they recite Surah Yasin, or they recite a Surah from the There is a hadith about the recitation of Surah Yasin, but it is not established. It is not established and it is not proven regarding the recitation of Yasin upon somebody who's died, or deathbed. Generally reciting the Quran, again, the problem is people are doing it without established evidences. They're doing it because now he's dying, so this must be some good action now, etc. There's no specific evidence highlighting that these are the actions that you do. The specific evidences tell us when somebody's dying, encourage them to say, the kalima, la ilaha illallah. Those kinds of things are specifically mentioned. Quran, generally, overall, it is something that 
is not established, how the, the Indo-Pak and other people in the communities, they do it before death and after death and at the graveyard and reciting Qur'an, etc. It is not established. There is a discussion, a detailed discussion about the topic of Ihda'u'l-Thawab. This is one of the topics of Aqidah. Is it permissible for you to do an action and give the reward to somebody else? That's a, a topic, but no, we're not going to discuss it now. That is a topic, a discussion, a, an issue about whether it is permissible for you to do actions and give the reward to someone else. And that's what they are basically trying to say. We're reading the Qur'an and the reward is for this person. But it's not established. It is not clear-cut, established and proven you can do that with the Qur'an. So it, there's no clear hadith or sunnah for that. There is, a, uh, there is a, a, a statement and opinion of some of the scholars that weak narrations, they can be used in a targhib or tarheeb. That weak narrations can be used in fada'il uh, al-a'mal. They can be used in virtuous actions or in encouragement. Uh, like there's the narration in, uh, where one of the imams, he made up a hadith. That whoever recites the Qur'an, you're going to get this reward and that reward. And he made up all these things. These rewards you're going to get. And so one of the narrators in the chain of narration went to the person who narrated it to him. He said, who did you hear this? Tell me the chain. He said, I, I got it from such and such a person. So he went to that next person in the chain. He said, I got it from such and such. He went to that person in the chain. And they were in different places, Iraq and Saudi and these places everywhere. He went to all of them until he got to the last one. He said, they all sent me to you. So where did you get this hadith? Which companion? He said, I'll be honest, I never heard it from any companion. I made it up because all the people, they had abandoned reading the Qur'an. So I needed to encourage them somehow. So I made it up that there's a hadith, whoever reads the Qur'an, you'll get this reward and that reward to encourage them to read. Of course, impermissible to do that action. But uh, some scholars, they say if there are weak narrations, that's fabricated. But if there are weak narrations about encouragement or about virtuous actions, that you can narrate them just to encourage and give virtuous, uh, you know, to encourage people upon those good actions generally. But the best opinion, best opinion is that you don't. And the reason being, there are enough authentic narrations. You don't need the weak ones. There are enough authentic narrations encouraging you to do good actions and encouraging you with fadal al-amal. There are enough. How many hadith in Bukhari? Thousands you pick up the book this big now. How many hadith in Muslim, Sunan, Abidawid, Nasa'ah? How many have you got? Authentic narrations. Why do you have to go use the weak ones? So the strongest and best opinion is there's no need. But yes, some of the scholars in the olden days, they used to say with those kinds of things, when it's just encouragement and little things, no aqidah points, nothing serious like that. Just generally, if you do good deeds, you'll get you know reward and things. Just to encourage people. Some of the scholars used to say that, but there's no need. Stick to the authentic and sahih, and encourage people to learn the sahih. That is better. If you're buying a product, let's say, uh, like a machine, probably it's like 100 pounds, and sometimes they say that there's like a protection plan on it for like three years. And pay extra 50 pounds. Yeah, is that permissible? You know... (coughs) They say, if... Some of the scholars, they say, if this warranty, insurance, insurance is haram. That's, forget that, that's haram. Like, uh, uh, you know, you buy a product and they say, we can sell you a separate insurance, a separate policy or something which covers you, etc. Like that, it's haram. 
But if they say to you that buy this washing machine, it's 500, but we have this package, if you buy it for 520 or 530 or whatever it is, then within that we offer warranty and this and that. Some scholars, they allow that. Some. There is an opinion. They say because that then is part of the whole package together. It's not an insurance you're buying separately. But, but, the majority and what is understood generally is that really the item is 500. And if you're not going to buy it for 530 with that extra warranty, then really you're just paying 30 pounds for the insurance. So really it's a bit of a gray area. Because even if we say, okay, if it's part of the package, how are you going to really determine if something is part of the package or is that considered a separate insurance? It gets a bit of a gray area. So the best thing really is to avoid those kinds of things. Avoid these extended warranties. If it comes with it, they say, look, this washing machine, these days you buy washing machines, automatic, five year, whatever, ring this number, they say, and automatic, you have your three years, four years, five years, you buy a new boiler, automatic, you have your two years, three years, whatever. That's within the product. You can't do anything. That's you've got your warranty in the product. But if it's extra outside, then you shouldn't take that. It's like car insurance now. You buy your basic car insurance, whatever it is, 500, but then they give you a quote, extras, windscreen cover, breakdown cover, this cover, that cover. If you tick all those boxes, ends up 680 pounds or something. You shouldn't take all those extras. There's no need to take those extras. Have your dependence and trust in Allah. Do not take those extras. And even if you think about it mathematically, how does insurance work? Because they know the majority will be in the favor of the insurance company. You imagine now, how many years you've been driving. My own example. You're driving for 20 years now. Since 2001. 20 years exactly. In 20 years, I've had one incident. One incident in 20 years. If I had been taking all of these extras every year and paying the extra 150, 200 pounds every year, 300 pounds, my insurance, you know, will take all the biggest package, take every box with every extra. For 19 years out of the 20, I would never have used any of them. One year I had that accident. One year there was an incident. Outside of that, 19 years I've paid, 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 paid. For what? And they know that. Insurance companies aren't stupid. They know how the mathematics works. If it was the other way, mathematics worked out that the majority of people, 19 years out of 20, they claim. Insurance companies would go bust. There'd be no such thing as insurance anymore. Mathematically, they know. The reality is in your lifetime, look at all these people now, house insurance and this insurance. No, I have nothing. Not a, You know, sometimes they ring me. They say, when's your house insurance due? I say, what house insurance? They say, when's your this insurance, that insurance? I say, I've got nothing. I have no insurance on anything. These kuffar, and, and you know, people, Muslims even, they give house insurance, whatever that costs, I don't know. House insurance. How many people do you know who've had house fires and their houses burnt down? How many people? From all of this community leads, how many people? Do you know 20 people? Their houses burnt down? Or their houses got right? It happens, maybe it happens, maybe here and there. But you're not going to give all that money out for nothing. That's why insurance is haram. You're paying out for just a peace of mind. Islamically, you cannot pay out for something which is not tangible. There's nothing actually there. You're not paying for anything. You're just paying if something happens, then we'll help you. But if nothing happens, we're keeping your money. Haram. So you should avoid these kinds of things. 
not uh, have any fear. Don't fear. Put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Know that all of everything which happens is by the decree of Allah. You don't need insurance on your phones, on your laptops, these things. You don't need to buy insurance on these affairs. When you buy a new item, they give you warranties and everything with it. No problem. But outside of that, buying extra and add-on and this much and that much, no need for any of that. I think we should conclude. It's 9.45. We'll uh, continue with it from next week, inshallah ta'ala. Or slightly late this week, but next week we should be okay because the previous lecture before this is moving earlier. So next week we should start on time, 8.30 p.m. 8.30 p.m. I should be here on time, inshallah ta'ala.